Chris O'Connor here. Join the Curmudgeon Rock Report's invite-only curmudgeonly community at facebook.com slash curmudgeonrock. Also look out for a Spotify playlist that pays honor to this episode. This is the Curmudgeon Rock Report, and this is your podcast made by rock geek iconoclastic outsiders for rock geek iconoclastic outsiders. For those of you who lament that rock music has gone the way of jazz and slipped into niche genre status, we are here to keep that flame alive by providing insight, analysis, recommendations, and honest takes, not hot takes. And hey, there's a good chance you'll learn some rock history you never knew before. In the late 1990s, Muse emerged from Tainmouth, Devon, way down in the southwest of England, and started their slow, steady climb to become, by the early 2010s, one of the biggest, most popular rock groups in the world. A bona fide arena rock band in most of the world, and even a stadium-filling act throughout the UK and Europe, They have reached the sphere of popularity usually reserved for bands such as Metallica, the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and the Foo Fighters. Musically, they evolved from a post-Britpop, Radiohead-influenced brand of alternative rock to this Frankenstein monster of innovation, incorporating everything from progressive rock to heavy metal to classical music to grunge, to electronic dance music, to glam rock, to Ennio Morricone-inspired cinematic music, to even flirtations with mainstream pop. Yet one constant throughout their career has been the absolute derision and extreme criticism they've received from music media, i.e. the critics. Speaking as a music geek myself, (laughs) and who has music geek friends, I can also personally attest to the very strong dislike and near hatred Muse receive from hipsters and the cooler-than-thou music geek scene. For an extremely popular band, Muse are actually quite unhip to like. Why is that? Well... Yours truly, curmudgeons, will not only tackle that question, but will also make an ironclad defense of them, and as to why they're actually a fantastic rock band, arguably the last great arena rock band, and that they deserve more respect than they get from the music media intelligentsia. That's right, folks. The curmudgeon rock report will troll the music critic establishment once more as we go... In defense of Muse. So, Art, you know, out there in uh, DIY podcast land, of which we are a part, uh, uh, Muse is one of those bands that's just fun uh, to deride. I think, as you kind of mentioned in the uh, in the opener, there, uh, we're not going to do that. Why? Because we, unlike a lot of people, uh, when we say, "Well, one, we think Muse does not suck." And when we say that Muse does not suck, we actually mean they do not suck. We are not pretentious or we're not faking it. Correct? 
Right. We, we don't do bullshit irony. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, no, lot, we don't. Which a lot, a lot of a younger generation uh, uh, music media people do. Another thing I like to say, I hope all you, uh, all our listeners in podcast land really uh, appreciate the work that we're putting into this because we're missing yeah. game one of the World Series for this. Yeah. I, and there's already been like a, a big home run. Remember, I live outside of Houston. And so yeah. this is like a real sacrifice. Uh, <laughs> but hey, you know, what, what are you going to do? We're, uh, you know, we we are in service of you. This is your podcast and we're just as big a geeks as you are. So uh, so thank you for uh, for tagging along uh, uh, with us uh, as always. So uh, anything going else? Uh, anything else going on there on your end there in uh, South Korea? No, well, uh, there was an earthquake in a city about two hours away from me, and we didn't feel anything. So, <laughs> I got you. You know, you, you sure it wasn't a tad record? <laughs> God's balls. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say God's <laughs> balls caused an earthquake in Guangzhou, South Korea. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. We uh, uh, we 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 are old men. You know, it's actually kind of scaring me now because you know how like like most of the uh, writing, the content on the, the the net is all like clickbait. Yeah, and this kind of like you know surface level stuff. Uh, you're starting to get like retrospectives or like talk about stuff that happened in 1997, uh, written by people who clearly were not alive in 1997. Yeah, and uh, they have no idea what the fuck they're talking about. And I know, getting ha- getting half the facts wrong. Uh, that's another way of saying, folks, uh, you know, some of you out there are actually younger than us. Most of you are probably around our age. Uh, yeah. When when it comes to like bad backs and other stuff, uh, we just remind you of just uh, we're old enough to be old enough. Uh, bugga bugga. So, <laughs> well, yeah. Do, do you know where the, where there aren't any bad backs, Chris, in the Where's parallel that? in the parallel universe? Oh, yeah, I, I definitely need Parallel Universe. It comes without pain uh, uh, these days. Uh, there, there is no pain, and it's all peace over in the Parallel Universe here. Let us uh, slip over into that side of the space-time continuum. Uh, folks, uh, if you've been listening to this podcast for most of two years, you know that we do this uh, segment every episode uh, called the Parallel Universe. Uh the idea is that uh, in a world that made any sense, uh, there would be bands and artists and genres and uh, happenings that would absolutely be on the billboards back when there was such a thing as billboards. And, uh, you know, in the arenas, uh, you know, Olympic Stadium would be filled uh, by these bands uh, rather uh, than by uh, those bands, you know, the, the Taylor Swifts and uh well, hey, at least Kanye is not uh, not on top anymore. So, uh, that's, <laughs> so, so that's that's one th- good thing to say about the real universe. Cancel uh, culture but, finally got it right. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, you know, some, some sometimes they cancel uh, when canceling is due. Uh, but anyway, yeah. So uh, we in this segment we cover albums, uh, whether of very recent vintage or sometimes we go into the parallel vault uh, to cover albums that came out within the last uh, decade. Uh, but hey, uh, Art and I are staying in the here and now, and we're going to uh, do these albums. Uh, you're you're covering a pretty interesting record. This is like one of the stranger, quite quirkier records I've heard in a long time. Yes, um, this is an episode where we are lauding the virtues of Muse, a band steeped in progressive rock influences. So because of that, it's natural that our Parallel Universe segment of new album reviews centers around bands and artists who are progressively inclined chris later you will cover one of several new albums by king gizzard and the lizard wizard released this month as for me i will dive into what can be described as 
progressive soul or prog R&B by discussing Natural Brown Prom Queen, the second album by Sudan Archives. Now, Sudan Archives is the art project or slash stage name of Brittany Parks, a Cincinnati-born singer-songwriter musician now based in Los Angeles. She's been described by some reviewers as post-genre, but a good listen to this album reveals her to be deeply steeped in R&B and soul, albeit fiercely eclectic with tentacles into funk, traditional pop, hip-hop, electro-pop, and even shades of classical music due to her uh, dexterity on the violin, which she learned at a young age. Parks isn't the first artist to blend all these particular styles together. See Kanye West, The Weeknd, Beyonce, etc. But she does so with a nearly anti-pop edge and lyrical ambiguity that toes twisty lines around thoughtful uh, through a thoughtful social commentary ethnic identity and garish lustful carnality she can yep. be, she can be alluring nasty and silly all at once and yes that's a compliment the album's first track and first single homemaker is a delightful slice of neo soul updated for the 21st century one of several songs showing an accessibility that eluded Parks on her first album, Athena, from 2019. Uh, Sudan Archives is nothing if not fiercely eclectic, and the dense yet crisp hip-hop beats of uh, Ciara and the down-and-dirty OMG Brit, the latter being one of the best tracks on the album, bring pelvis thrust into her grooves. Uh, like a lot of Gen Z artists in this era, Parks does tend to suffer a little from musical ADD. And, <laughs> and what keeps this album at a three or three and a half star rating rather than a four for me is that there are few too many moments where she tries to jam three or four songs into one song. I mean, come on, Brittany. How about one beat, one rhythm, one melody at a time, you know? Yep. Um, however, she does settle down in the last third of the album. Um, Freakalizer is your classic <clears throat> parallel universe track, a song whose immaculate hybrid of R&B and electro soul would be a massive pop hit and dance floor smash in a parallel universe where better music ruled the day. <laughs> Homesick, Gorgeous, and Arrogant is an irresistible, slow burn R&B jam about a romantic attraction that is oh so wrong. Uh, the album ends on a high note with 513, the area code of Cincinnati, for those who don't know, with its slightly up-tempo trip-hop beat as the foundation for one of the best grooves of any song released this year. Uh, Natural Brown Prom Queen is a flawed album, but it's an album that shows the potential and heights that Miss Parks can reach with a little more editing and a little more reining in of her indulgent tendencies. Nevertheless, in a parallel universe where not just rock, but truly great, artistically valid and esoteric R&B soul is a huge part of the pop cultural zeitgeist, Sudan Archives is one to watch. Hell, she's probably already one to watch in our universe. Yeah, I would definitely say that. Uh, it's really intriguing. Uh, she is a violin uh, prodigy. Uh, you know, kind of grew up, uh, you know, that, that classical training and was known for that and then kind of, you know, let her freak, fa freak flag fly 
and uh, moved to LA. Uh, so it's kind of interesting. She does mix in some of that violin, but she does it in a very subtle, uh, supple way. There's a part of me that kind of wants to hear her like put that violin way out in front of the mix yeah, and be, and be a little bit showier. Just the idea of like trip hop beats with a violin, like right. Charlie Daniels, right. you know, like, you know, kind of fit like fiddling, fiddling yeah. to the trip hop. Uh, but yeah, like you mentioned, there is some Soulquarian uh, influence there for sure. Uh, trip hop. I mean, I think some of the beats. I mean, evoke Massive Attack and and that stuff from uh, 30, 30 years ago. And you know, there's a. I mean, it's like you said, really eclectic uh, mix. I think there's some African polyrhythms uh, in there, and yeah. some of the, the frankness of it. Uh, there's one or two songs that actually kind of approach that Megan B. Stallion uh, kind of uh, smart bodiness. Yeah. Uh, so that's that's interesting. And OK, so now uh, Arturo kind of mentioned it. Uh, my uh, one of my assignments is uh, one of your uh, fellow or yours truly curmudgeons in uh, crafting uh, this podcast and uh, kind of curating the parallel universes. I am our resident King Gizzardologist. Uh, this is at least. I want to say this is the fifth record in this is, I think, the 46th or at least the 45th one of these live sessions we've done. And this will be my fifth Ken Gizzard record in less than <laughs> two years. Um, fortunately, this is actually the best uh, of those five. Yeah. Uh, and so, uh, you know, Gizzard, obviously, they uh, are about to release their third album in the span of a month. Uh, this album, which I'll be covering, was the first of those and by far the best of them uh, with my favorite album title of the year, uh, <laughs> Ice, Death, Planets, Lungs, Mushrooms, and Lava, uh, which pretty much tracks the the songs on the record. <laughs> you know, yeah, they, they've got songs called Mycelium. Uh, there, there's the mushrooms, uh, you know, uh, Lava and Magna, you know, there, there you go. So it's, uh, uh, you know, they know of what they speak. Um Think about, like I said, we've talked about King Gizzard and we, one of the mantras, you know, of, of this podcast is that there's something to be said for quality control. And Gizzard had gotten to the point here in the last few years where, uh, they didn't infest the rat's nest in 2019, which is to me, to me, one of their best records, one of the best records of the last five years. But, you know, since then it's been, they've kind of been plagued by a disease that I don't know what you would call it. Basically it's like trying to stuff 10 pounds of shit in a five pound bag. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of what they've done. And some of it has been interesting. Like butterfly 3000 was a pretty good record. It was, I hate pretty- that. I hate that album. Oh, it's so bad. It's, it's, it's like, it's like third rate wussy craft work, but, 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 but craft work were actually good. <laughs> yeah. But remember he had just had a kid. And so I, I like the concept of sort of bodyless up in heaven. Uh, there. So, but anyway, uh, so, you know, so you get this dream pop on one end and they did more microtonal stuff, which is kind of one of their shticks. And uh, the last record they uh, released uh, from uh, earlier this year was Omnium Gatherum, which is, you know, classic uh, kind of Ging Gizzard uh, disease, which is they had a 71 minute record, which from which you could have extracted a very cohesive 45 minute record out of. It's too bad. There was 26 minutes of garbage uh, around it. So, I, I, I would say even more than that. I mean, the fact that the 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 the, the dripping tap, the first song in that double album set, is the only yeah. song from that album that they play live. I think is very telling of what they think of that record. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it's definitely a very kind of like a studio, uh, like a studio candy record. Um, and yeah, like you said, so it's. 
they, so they've had this issue of, of kind of either, uh, you know, trying to do too much or not being focused. Well, with this record, uh, I guess what you can say is sometimes you just got to shut up and play. You know, yeah. you got to you got to stop being clever. You got to stop overthinking it. You got to stop dominating the world. And you know what? Like, what the fuck? You know, we play. We're a good band. Uh, yeah, we know the math, but, you know, we're in this to have fun. So, OK, let's challenge ourselves. This from what I've read about this record, uh, Stu McKenzie and his bandmates, uh, they were going to do a series of seven jams sessions over seven days. And each of them was going to be framed around a major key. Now, said there were going to be seven major keys, and each day there would be a specific uh, key. And then that would be the organizing principle uh, for the jams. Well, they obviously were in the space to keep it loose, to keep it fun, and to uh, ride a, ride the guitar. It was, you know, kind of like do more sort of lead guitar. And so what it ends up being is a sort of very laid back, very retro uh part psychedelic, part Latin, uh, just like laid back, no pressure, just jam uh, music with uh, with some pretty melodies and just a lot of great lead work from Stu McKenzie. And, yeah. and really, they were able to pull some what actually sound like intentional songs <laughs> out, out of those jams, like uh, the best of these being Ice Five, uh, Ice V, you know, like num- numeral uh, five, which... Uh, it's not the lyrics. I'll read that in a second. It this is like got to be the most like ridiculous lyrics to like the most like thrilling uh, Zappa esque Santana esque type of like yeah. lead guitar jam, yeah. uh, kind of jam song ever, uh, and just just really engaging. And they go deep. Iron Lung towards the end of the record. It's seven songs, like an hour and four minutes. And so it's you know it's it's one of those types of records. And so but they get into it. Ain't fish it's more laid back than that, but it's, it's a lot of fuzz and still nasty, but uh, they get into it. But the thing that I love about King Gizzard is uh, they, they take themselves seriously as musicians, musicians, but they don't really take themselves seriously any other time ever. <laughs> and yeah. so, so they, they somehow are uh, with a straight face can release a song with the following verse, which uh, I will try to recite in my most poetic grandest voice now quote pimple pus crop circle pit oozing out of crevices sentient toadstool throne crooked scepter alien bone frosted pistol pistol loaded spite shooting rays of frozen light feel the doom of flashing flood crimson clouds are raining blood these guys must have been stoned when they wrote this. The, yeah, lyrics, was, the lyrics, at least. <laughs> yeah, I, I was going to say, and, and the cadence of it, now that I read it, it kind of reminds me of like Vincent Price on Thriller. <laughs> yeah. So it's, but yeah, despite all that, this is actually a very organic, uh, a very spontaneous uh, record. Definitely the most organic thing they've done uh, yeah. in, a lo- in a long time. I mean, unless you want to count that that one, and I'm brain farting right now. The the one they did for their festival there, the uh, the two 15 minute songs. Yeah, made in timeline, which is more like th- th- that's the most in, the most interesting album in their catalog because it's so it's so unlike anything they do usually. Yeah, uh, yeah, and th- there they got Aboriginal in some yeah. of their uh, influences and and, know, and and ambient techno, which yeah, which, uh, which which they haven't gone back to since. Yeah, it's a strange mix. It's ambient te- uh, techno mixed in with like digger uh, <laughs> not, not not something you hear every day. Yeah. But on this record, it's just a straightforward, you know, uh, 
you know, just basically uh, a lead guitar, kind of like a quiet drums, a little bit of bass and, you know, mixed in with some sax. I mean, the, the, the most like sort of, um, uh, you know, unusual touch or the quirky touch is all the, the sax and the horn stuff. Yeah. In it. And so yeah. that's it. it just has a j- jazzy vibe, but it's very consistent. And the more I listen to it, the more it grows on me. Uh, I put it in my top five records for the year so far. And if I keep going, I could probably make an argument for it being number one. It's my number three right now. Uh, I, I, I think this is one of their five best albums, period, of their, in their dense discography. Uh, Infest the Rat's Nest is still my number one. in, in their. But, but this, this, this is one of their five best albums. I think the production is really crisp. Yep. Um, which you don't get in a lot of gizzard. A lot of a lot of gizzard albums kind of have a sheen to them. This one doesn't have that. This one sounds like it's live in the studio. Yeah, yeah, um, very crisp, very crisp, really yep. crisp. Uh, the guitars are raging. Mackenzie really plays his ass off. His best guitar work. Um, you mentioned early Santana and like 1969, 70, uh, Hot Rats era Frank Zappa. Yeah, I hear that, but I also hear like early to mid 70s Grateful Dead leaning yes. toward blues for Allah period dead. And yeah. I hear a little bit of King Crimson, like a, a oh, mid, yeah. mid 70s King Crimson, particularly the last song, uh, Gleese 710. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, this is very much a 1970s, you know, jammy prog rock album. <laughs> yeah. And actually like uh, scarily enough, if I guess if you uh, listen to it from enough angles, like the, uh, the album opener is name uh, it's, called mycelium which is it is an ode to psychedelic mushrooms but it's in kind of a reggae beat yeah but but the way that uh mckenzie plays the guitar it's almost like robert fripp playing reggae yeah so (laughs) yeah so hey you know king crimson seeps into the bones of a lot of young bands what what can what can we say so yeah folks definitely check out this record uh again this is one of three uh records i have not spent as much time or well i haven't spent any time with one of them uh, but what can you tell us a little bit about these, these other two records before we, uh, get into the main uh, meat of the episode? So, um, like you said, Chris, the, this, this, this other, other albums <laughs> that they're releasing this yeah. month and, uh, have released already. Um, you have to understand the context, uh, into how these albums were made. Uh, the guys in the band went into the studio for seven days. They, uh, with no songs written at all. Right. And they went into the studio and they basically did improvisational jam sessions for seven days straight. They got their favorite parts of those jams and they edited and stitched them together into songs. Um, what you we, what you hear on Ice, Death, Planets, Lungs, Mushrooms and Lava are <laughs> the A-level jams, whereas Laminated Denim is kind of the B-level jams <laughs> and yeah. the guitar work isn't as thrilling. The production isn't as crisp. Um, it's just overall just not as inspired as Ice Death Planets, uh, which leads me to believe they probably should have left laminated denim like on the in, on the cutting room floor. We'll see. Yeah. The, the new one comes out this weekend. It's called Changes. I don't think that one comes from the jam sessions, but we'll see. Yeah, and it, it's kind of consistent with Gizzard's MO. You know, it's like they just can't help themselves at the end of the day. Yeah. But yeah. They, they got the A-level jams. They put it together. Like we said, it's one of the best five records that both of us have heard this year. Uh, and then they had to go ahead and uh, just release the rest. You know, they had to like uh, scrape the crud off the, the, the bowl. Yeah. And, you know, they wanted us to lick the spoon after the spoon's been in the dishwasher for, right. you know, or, or in the <laughs> sink for an hour. Yeah. Yeah. But hey, what the heck? It wouldn't be Ken Gizzard if there wasn't just too much of it. 
Hey folks, it's Chris. One of the things we've learned over the life of the Curmudgeon Rock Report is that if you want to build a better podcast, it's a really good idea to listen to other podcasts. It not only keeps us on our toes, but hey, there's a lot of fascinating information out there in podcast land presented by lots of fascinating people. Here's one podcast that I've been vibing on lately, Cocaine and Rhinestones, The History of Country Music. Host Tyler Mayen Coe, the son of rebel songwriter David Allen Coe, spins really good yarns about the fables, legends, and characters that have dotted the country landscape since its very beginnings. This includes a few tales that are just so insane, yet you have to know that they're true. The main reason to listen to Cocaine and Rhinestones, however, is an intermittent series of episodes of the saga of George Jones and Tammy Wynette. Coe has a straightforward, deadpan narrative style that helps you appreciate just how wild these two country icons were. The more you listen, the more your jaw will drop over just how addiction overtook the mind of George Jones. So right after you're done listening to us, check out Cocaine and Rhinestones. It's available at all the places where you find all of the other podcasts. So the basis of this episode, like I stated earlier, and then the intro to this episode in the beginning, the big stadium rock band Muse, superstar rock band, one of the biggest bands in the world, actually are quite hated and derided by large swaths of the music media slash critics community, and even among some hipster fans too. Um, there's a lot of, I mean, they're really huge, they're really popular, but they've been shit on a lot over the last 20 years by, I guess you would say the snooty, more pretentious uh, bastion of uh, music critic land. Would you, what did you say, Chris? Yeah, which you know is is kind of hilarious in the sense that most of those people, if you asked them, probably love Queen, Russian, uh, Deep Purple. Right, uh, I know. So, so, so what in the world? Okay, so yeah, Muse has a reputation. Uh, they're known as a highly dramatic band, uh, and for us, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> there's a difference between bombastic and sort of uh, beatific and sort of uh, theatrical and then dramatic drama as in, you know, sort of emotionalism, but that's not really appreciated. And uh, Matt Bellamy is very talented, but is also an easy target because of his, you know, uh, apparent sincerity or anger or whatever you want to call it. And so uh, here is uh, a, a sampling of some of the crap that they've taken from uh uh, from uh, music critics and also commenters on boards uh, out there in uh, uh, cyberspace for the last 20 years. And so uh, the biggest chuckle I got in my uh, research and my travels here, uh, I found a 2009 uh, message board on IGNboards.com uh, titled Muse Sucks Big Hairy Balls. <laughs> uh, and so you know, that really stood out. And then uh, a commenter down thread says, uh, quote, you know, just basically being deadpan, uh, quote says, uh, they make sounds by manipulating instruments. Some people will like it. Some people will not. This is the circle of life. SDFU. <laughs> uh, and, and then there's a response to that, which says, good job. You managed to sound pretentious and R word. I can't say that anymore. R word at the same time. 
<laughs> so for pretension, and so I, I, I thought that was was funny. And so basically, it it, it inspires these passions, and it's just sort of like, uh, they're they're like fish in a barrel for like uh, for like grumpy uh, uh, sort of uh, like you said, like like hipster douchebags, and not only that, but la- lazy assholes. And so this is kind of like. Uh, kind of a hook of this episode is, is when, when you're too busy being lazy or standoffish about what's popular, you actually kind of miss out on what's good. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so now let's get into the quote unquote professionals. And so, uh, the, uh, the album that Muse just came out with, uh, this year, which we'll be discussing towards the end of this episode is called will of the people. And they just released this within the last month or so, uh, two months. Uh, but pitchfork, uh, they kind of summarize Muse, uh, this way, uh, quote, generally speaking, Muse operate in three modes. One, the government is trying to control me, but I won't let them because I love freedom. Two, I am so horny that my gonads have leapt into my throat and started knocking against my larynx like a fleshy Newton's cradle. <laughs> and three, alas. Uh, and, and so this is meant to be a a, 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 a smackdown. Of course, my reaction when I read this is like, as if any of that is a bad thing. I mean, come on, man. You know, <laughs> I mean, that, I mean, come on, man. You, you, as if Steely Dan doesn't say alas every other fucking song, you know, <laughs> come on. And so this is a band that, that, that oh, so, I mean, this kind of goes back to their beginnings. They've been around, uh, they released their debut ec- record in 1999. They're from Britain. Uh, they have a uh, penchant for dramatic uh, uh maybe bombastic rock with a little bit of a prog edge. And so, yeah, they, they might be a, but for band, but for Radiohead, they might not actually have gotten uh, thrust out sure. there, sure. but you know, but the, the laziest line, and this is one of the myths we'll talk about is that they're like Radiohead. Now this is supposedly a, this is the entirety of the, of an, of a four star review in on allmusic.com of their 2001 record origin of symmetry and keep in mind they that this was written uh 21 years ago and this is the entire uh, review four stars mind you mm. quote if you're going to pillage someone else's ideas then go for broke because even if you find yourself crammed between the barriers of creative space utterly at a loss for ideas expression or thought you'd still have a self-respect buzzing in your ear like a mad angelic insect putting down the newspaper and taking out a cigar to remind you that hell, if you want to sound like Radiohead, when even Tom York doesn't want to sound like Radiohead, you might as well take it to preposterous, bombastic, over-the-top levels. Add church organs, mental electronics, riffs bouncing off each other like the monolithic screams in 2001 A Space Odyssey, and you'll finally be in a position to crack skulls like coconuts and make the world's speakers ooze gooey blood. (laughs) <laughs> yeah that's a four-star review <laughs> yeah that, that 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 is a four-star review for what actually is a very good record origin of, of of symmetry uh which is where they kind of started to maybe kind of sound like muse uh that would come a few years later but anyway so uh, a little bit more of a sampling of some of this uh, crap they get it uh they get from so this is from an uh all, again all music again from another four-star review I think like three and a half or four star views of uh, 2018 simulation theory, uh, quote, uh, whether they're fighting alien invaders, shadowy government conspiracies or the apocalypse, Muse always do it for the love. Uh, <laughs> like, okay. 
And so that's from all music. Now, uh, here's a line uh, from the AV Club. And I think this was more sort of a uh, like a retrospective and within the last couple of years. Uh, quote, give Muse credit for remaking itself over the years into a full-blown theatrical experience and not just another echoing rock band. But that experience is, frankly, kind of shitty. <laughs> uh, okay, so from another uh, message board, I think this is on like some e-commerce site where uh, they're, and a, a British person obviously wrote this, quote, a resounding plop of a turd in the musical toilet. Oh God! <laughs> yep. And so now, now let's go to a a louder sound uh, review of Drones, which I think is their best record from 2015. Uh, but he says, uh, "quote Good luck pulling that off, pulling that off around a campfire on an acoustic guitar." Jeez. <laughs> yeah. And then from the same review, quote Familiar Bellamy, uh, Matt Bellamy obsessions uh, are unlikely to give Noam Chomsky new food for thought. <laughs> yeah i mean well let, let's just put it this way like if you're a muse fan uh chances are i mean no 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 chonsky is for like eggheads like our age uh no no one under the age of 35 knows who the fuck Noam chonsky and if they do uh ch- you know chances are they're planning to shoot up the local bank with an ar-15 um <laughs> can, can, can uh, i can i read one that you sent me chris yeah go ahead this is from Everett True, really good writer, yeah. British mm-hmm. music journalist, uh, wrote for The Enemy or Melody Maker. I'm not sure which one. He was famous for uh, really being the first uh, the first serious music journalist to write about the Seattle grunge scene in, sure. uh, in the uh, late 1980s. It was a personal friend of Nirvana and Kurt Cobain, wrote a great, in my opinion, the definitive uh, biography of Nirvana uh, several many years ago. His quote on Muse, and he put this in a blog, I think, um, yeah. right, right yeah, about his, yeah. music. Right? Yeah, his pers- yeah, his personal blog, yeah. Yeah, quote, God, I hate Muse. All the dullest bits of all the dullest parts of histrionic rock vocalizing, coupled with all the dullest bits of prog and glam and cheeseboard guitar, and man, there have been plenty, Coupled with all the yawning chasms of imagination Pink Floyd have traded in ever since they dropped quote-unquote songs from their repertoire. Coupled with all the very dullest parts of retro 1980s electronica and retro 1980s rock posturing. And man, there have been plenty. Coupled with all the dullest parts of life. Why is it that all these cunts insist on sounding exactly like each other? The animals looked from pig to man, from man to pig, from Tom York to Chris Martin to Matt Bellamy, and there is no way of telling them apart. God, I hate Muse. Where are you from? Waitrose. Singing in a strained falsetto does not make you special or soulful. It just means you sing in strained falsetto. Yeah. uh, Well, basically, that's like him trying to be Bob Criscow, but only after like one listen. I mean, you got to figure Bob writes his shit at least after three or four listens. But and and Criscow after having a few beers. Yeah. Well, well, that and and also a very unartful. You would you know, come on, ever true. I've read ever read his stuff. He's usually not that bad. Uh, (laughs) Hey, you know, but hey, it's his personal blog, so let him let him come across like a grumpy old man. So uh, now slightly more restrained uh, than that, but kind of of the same vein. This is a more tasteful takedown. Uh, a review from basically whatever is you want, whatever's left of spin of uh, their uh, Muse's album, Second Law, 
which is yeah. a very good record, by the way. Uh, and it says, quote, it, the reviewer obviously is probably like our age, quote, not to come off like a dinosaur, but when ancient art rockers like Queen, Electric-like Orchestra, and Yes, engaged the electronic novelties of their day from disco to later synth pop, they didn't handle them like curators carefully shuffling Picassos around at the MoMA. No, they <laughs> rolled up their sleeves and got down and dirty, crafting all manner of hybrids and fusions, resulting in killer tunes like Under Pressure, Turn to Stone, and the magnificently schizoid extended remix of Owner of a Lonely Heart. Oh, God. No danger of anything that radical reoccurring here. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, this is uh, from a uh, Something Awful is a uh, is another blog, somethingawful.com. Uh, and it's uh, from a guy who has a terrific uh, pen name, Andrew Garbage Day Miller. Uh, <laughs> this is a, a 2009 uh, takedown of music, which uh, basically because they've been around for 23 years, uh, smacking down and talking shit about Muse is now a generation old, which uh, a fun one will come a little bit later. Which, uh, But anyway, so let's talk about this. And so he says, uh, back in 2001, Muse was at the height of its likability. Even then, the group was overwhelmingly Baroque playing pseudo-progressive space rock while singer Matt Bellamy gasped desperately between falsetto wails. But its first two albums had tanked in America, and the chasm between the group's utter lack of success and its over-the-top pretensions gave it an irresistible pathos. Mm. It was almost charming in its harmlessness, like some homeless guy wearing a crown and making grandiose decrees. <laughs> since, since then, since then, Muse has graduated to playing stadiums in England and arenas in the United States, enabled by a fan base that encourages its every grotesque musical overindulgence. And Bellamy has established himself as pop culture's most beloved noisy mouth breather since Darth Vader. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah. Now, speak, speaking of those fans, uh, this, this one was wonderful, and this is a good way to end this section on. Uh, so as we've said, so Muse has been around for 23, three years, which means there's a lot of people out there that basically grew up on Muse. Uh, we didn't grow up on Muse, but there's a lot of people that grew up on Muse. And so uh, there was a 2016 piece, which is a very fun read uh, on Vice or in Vice, I guess on Vice, in Vice, whatever you want to say, by a young writer named Daisy Jones. Uh, the uh, title, the headline of the article is, Who the Hell Listens to Muse? <laughs> because remember, they're still huge in 2016, but she can't figure this out. And so here, so here she, uh, there are a couple of things. So she kind of begins the article this way, quote, Matt Bellamy, a man who thinks that human beings are genetically engineered slaves for aliens. And the queen is a reptilian sh uh, shapeshifter is bigger than ever. Clearly I am missing something because numbers don't lie. There must be a lot of serious muse fans out there. The guy sitting two tables away from you in the office could be a serious Muse fan. The girl who you were chatting to in the smoking area last night could be a serious Muse fan. You could be a serious Muse fan. Apparently, Muse fans are everywhere, although I have absolutely no idea who they are. And so for the rest of the piece, she goes out and like hits like festivals or shows and like talks to like, you know, real live Muse fans at Muse shows. And this one's wonderful. Uh, so uh, she comes up to this dude and goes, uh, so when did you first get into Muse? The guy says, I was going through YouTube when I was really young and I was like, ooh, what's this background song to this weird Illuminati video? And then I heard their song Uprising. Uh, I was one of them YouTube benders. I was on one of them YouTube benders when you're really warping your mind with what's going on in the world. And so uh, Daisy Jones 
retorts, right, so Mews are part of the Illuminati. And he goes, uh, there are theories that they control the world and stuff or are starting out the world and giving people help. Mews are saving the world? Yeah, let's go with that. How do Mews make you feel? They make songs for warriors like Unite. Let's kill those bad guys. Tell them I did not yield. Tell them I thought I fought to the last dying breath. Cool. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So, so again, so there's a lot of this. And then, and then she finally ends it. And then the kind of the punchline is at this point, I decided to walk away because he was doing high kicks and eating cheesy Doritos at the same time. I felt a disappoint. Uh, I felt a bit disappointed that my lazy stereotype of a muse fan wasn't actually miles off. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so yeah, like I said, so there is an awful lot of derision out there and apparently it is fun to uh, deride muse and it does lead to some pretty good writing. Uh, that said, uh, while there might be some like valid, just sort of factual statements that I might agree with there, all of these people are missing the point. You, yeah. me- you remember White Men Can't Jump? Yeah. The movie? Yeah. Uh, so there's a, a running line through that movie where Wesley Snipes says to uh, the Wesley Snipes character says to Woody Harrelson character uh, when they're, they're listening to R and B, you know, you're hearing, but you're not listening, man. You're just yeah. hearing. Yeah. And yeah. so I think that's what a lot of people do with Muse. Mm-hmm. And so I think from there. Uh, let's start talking about what we usually do in these in defense of uh, episodes is we give you five myths mm-hmm. about this band that we can easily debunk. And we think these are a bunch of horseshit. Right. And so uh, I will say the the myth and Arturo, you will start or do most of the debunking because I'm, I know that you've got some passionate sort of uh, irritation about some of these. Some of so, them, definitely. Yeah. Yes. Uh, well, this is the one that I that bothers me the most, and I'll get into it. Number one, they're nothing more than Radiohead imposters. Right, yeah. This is one that's dogged them for many years, especially from Gen X and other millennial generation critics and fans who are eternally smitten with the myth of Radiohead. Yes, when Muse started out, particularly with their 1999 debut album, Showbiz, they were certainly in debt to the edgy alternative rock of early Ben's era Radiohead. As some people said at the time, they were like Travis with balls. (laughs) Uh, And yes, every time singer-guitarist Matt Bellamy opened his mouth, he couldn't help but sound like Radiohead singer Tom York. But that's where the similarity ends. Even as far back as showbiz, as we'll get into later in this episode, Muse showed a propensity to rock out with a heaviness approaching metal, much more so than Radiohead ever did. Uh, More importantly, as soon as their second album, Origin of Symmetry, came out in 2001, they were already undeniably carving out their own sound. This is essentially the album where Muse became Muse, M-U-S-E, you know, whereas Radiohead's curious dabbling with progressive rock led them to the heart of, you know, esoteric electronica. Muse's brand of prog rock proudly and unabashedly embraced the pomp, the grandiosity, and and the complex rock of bands such as Queen and Rush. Um, With 2003's Absolution, the band grew even bigger with textures and even song structures owing more to classical music 
coming to the forefront. And by the time of their 2006 magnum opus, Black Holes and Other Revelations, Muse's sense of of invincibility, as opposed to Radiohead's perennially self-imposed modesty, uh, led them to be unafraid to merge electronic pop, classic balladeering, and Ennio Morricone-inspired cowboy western soundtrack music to their thoroughly awesome blend. Uh, So in later years, excursions into glam rock, straight metal, and even new wave pop would further bury that fake Radiohead claim. Chris? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, by 2004 with Absolution, they start to sound like Muse. And by 2009, uh, they just just sound like Muse. Uh, They don't sound like Radiohead anymore. I mean, look, if you just listen to Sunburn, which is the lead track off of Showbiz, yeah, you'd think they would be biting off Radiohead. And maybe if you're only familiar with Hysteria and Uprising, maybe you could you know, say that, that there's a little bit of, of aping going on. But again, I think that's just a there's a laziness to that, that there's like an aversion. Oh, everybody knows of Muse. They're big and uh, a whole bunch of like cheesy people like them, cheesy European people like them. So they must yeah. be they must be terrible. No, you hit the nail on the head. I see uh, them being as much as influenced by uh, metal as any. Yeah, sure. I mean, I mean, think of any style of metal post nineteen eighty, and uh, they uh, they have songs and the the high end of like the the rocking end of their catalog. You know, they have their ballad end, but then their rocking end. I mean, you're talking like some really really intense stuff. I mean, you're talking like uh, Pantera, Smashing Pumpkins. Uh, 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 Mastodon, you know. I, I, I got another one for you. Matt Bellamy has gone on record saying one of his all-time favorite bands, Lightning Bolt. Yeah, which actually does not surprise me because he does have some of those, like at at his at his wackier. I mean, he does kind of approach that kind of kind of stuff. Uh, a few things too about the sort of the flaws of the Radiohead uh, comparison uh, logic. So, uh, Tom York has Johnny Greenwood. Uh, Matt Bellamy has Matt Bellamy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so York might be the sort of the, the resonant sort of conceptual genius. Yeah. But then he's like, Hey, Johnny, uh, help me make this sound better. Right. Uh, I'll do all the weird singing, but you may, you do the arrangement. Whereas yeah. Bellamy's doing it all himself. And so I think that's one thing to say that, uh, the guy is a really talented, uh, guitar player. He is a riff meister of the nth degree. He is not better than Johnny Greenwood, but he's pretty goddamn good. But you got to remember, he's doing the writing and the singing. Uh, I also think he's a much better singer than York in a lot of ways. York's a good singer, but he's kind of a one, maybe two trick pony. Whereas yeah. like Bell- Bellamy can, he goes all over the place. I mean, what, what's that guy's name? Ian Gillen? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Deep Purple. He's got that on the one range. And then he's got a very kind of soulful, deep, uh, you know, uh, baritone almost uh, on the lower end. So uh, a real good range. And then I was also thinking about this too with, okay, so in terms of that sort of post-progressive rock, uh, British uh, electronic instrumentation-inspired rock, you know, uh, mid-90s on. Yeah, Radiohead and uh, Muse are probably, along with a couple of other, like, you know, Keen and Travis and a few of those others, are most well-known for that. But that's kind of like saying, hey, Flannery O'Connor and um, William Faulkner were both uh, Southern writers uh, writing about Southern things, uh, back in the early part of the 20th century. Oh yeah. They must be aping each other. Right. Right. No. And so it's like, 
yeah, it's not one to one. It's it's just very weird. Oh, and uh, uh, Radiohead was never uh, produced by Timbaland either. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right, what's myth number two, Chris? Okay, myth number two, which is uh, I guess understandable, but is still again cheap and lazy. They're a group of right-wing conservative conspiracy theory-loving dickheads. Okay, I this is the one that really fires me up. All right, this one comes from the fact that starting around their 2006-07 period and culminating with their 2009 blockbuster album, The Resistance, Matt Bellamy's lyrics started to reflect a heavy interest in conspiracy theories, particularly with the notion of evil government forces forming an international syndicate whose main goal is to suppress individual freedom and enslave humanity. You know, not unlike the kind of dystopian sci-fi fodder Rush was dealing out in the mid-1970s. This kind of stuff was harmless enough in the noughties. But from 2016 onward, especially now in the era of truly dangerous misinformation websites like QAnon and bullshit myths like the whole voter fraud obsessed Stop the Steal movement in the U.S., Bellamy's conspiracy theory preoccupations at the time don't seem so harmless anymore. But let's shine a light on this, shall we? First of all, Bellamy has always maintained, then and now, that he's a left-leaning libertarian. Now, Mm -hmm. in North America, a libertarian means nothing more than a Republican who likes to smoke pot, all right? Uh, In the UK, however, where Muse are from, a libertarian actually is someone who straddles the centrist line. So when a British person says they're a left-leaning libertarian, leftist in the UK and Europe meaning practically socialist, what they are uh, is someone who fits snugly into the American Democratic Party. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. basically, Bellamy is what you would call an American Democrat. Of course, this myth of Muse that I'm talking about was further inflamed several years ago when former Fox News host Glenn Beck uh, once said about Muse, quote, as uncomfortable as it might be for you, I will still play your songs loudly. I thank you for singing words that resonate with man in his struggle to be free, end quote. Yes, Bellamy fervently distanced himself from this fandom by insisting that his politics were not shared by the likes of Beck. Hence his constant repeated refrain, I am a left-leaning libertarian. Okay. Um, Ah, yes, that's right. Man struggled to be free. From evil government forces. There's a wonderful, illuminating article in the British newspaper, The Guardian, from earlier yeah, this good, year. Good, good profile, good profile. Yeah, yeah. Bellamy really comes clean in this, uh, where he amusingly refers to himself as a recovering conspiracy theorist. Yep. Much like someone would say they're a recovering alcoholic or a recovering drug addict. By the early teens uh, in the musical timeline, this would be around the time of 2012's The Second Law, Bellamy says he started to wean himself off conspiracy theory nonsense. Quote, I've clawed my way out of my own ignorance and tried to understand as best I can what's going on. I started to get away from, let's say, quackery. (laughs) Uh, Mm -hmm. When asked about the allure of conspiracy theories, Bellamy goes on. And this is really good. Quote, first of all, Uh, people's obsession with conspiracy theories is what he's talking about. First of all, it's distraction from the really pressing issues. 
It makes yep. people feel engaged with topics that really are going nowhere. In terms of human psychology, there's a comfort that maybe human beings somewhere, even if they're evil, are in control, when in fact the truth is far more frightening. There are no humans in control, and it's all a bunch of chaos, end quote. Uh, when asked what he really worries about now, Bellamy says, quote, massive wealth inequality, huge political division, and ridiculously unserviceable debt. All these are signifiers of the end of an empire. Another interesting factoid about Mr. Bellamy from this article is that he invests money in startup companies that work to develop technology that confronts and tries to alleviate the effects of climate change and global warming. Yes, folks, Bellamy is a confessed environmentalist. Uh, combine that with his conspiracy theory debunking and illustration of his true political beliefs do his words sound like those of a right winger? Hell no. No. And I think where a lot of this comes from, well, one, yeah, there is the Glenn Beck Association, but they do have a lot of songs where it's, uh, you would think there's some militarism going on, right. you know, you know, not just uprising, but all through the catalog, there's a lot of uh, this uh, of, uh, you know, we will stand uh, strong in the face of adversity and those types of things. Yeah. Or it's like the, uh, you know, the world you know, time, you know, time is running out, uh, yeah. but yeah. you know, like, you know, things are actually running out or we're at, we're at the edge of, of sanity and everything is about to explode. And so either, you know, let's go down in a blaze of glory and this, you know, this kind of symbolic uh, thing, but it's more, and he says it in an article too, it kind of comes from his own sort of like sort of personal sense of doom that he was dealing with. Uh, and now he's kind of. He suggests that he's grown up, grown out of it a little bit, or yeah. at least if, if he does it, he's playing a character more than he ever did. But yeah, I mean, he ain't Lee, he ain't Lee Greenwood, he ain't John Rich, mm. uh, you know, he's none of these people. And at least on none of his on none of his records does he prof profess himself to be uh, an abused child who becomes Hitler. <laughs> yeah, so, so 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 this one is more appropriate for Roger Waters than it is for uh, Matt Bellamy uh, and Muse. <laughs> All right, what's the third myth, Chris? Okay, m uh, myth number three, and I I hate this one too. Their music is pompous, bloated, shallow arena rock. Right now, bloated, sure. Their stage shows nowadays deploy robots. Aerial drones, acrobats, and massive LED light shows. They are, they are a stadium band. Pompous, okay, but pompous in a very self-aware manner, much like the tongue-in-cheekiness of Queen. Um, right. they, know, they know they're ridiculous, and they're letting you in on that particular game. But shallow, oh no, put the brakes on that one. A big reason why Muse's music has crossed over to stadium rock status that attracts so many fans is the sheer level of humanism and humanity that they've always injected into their songs, even their biggest of gesture arena rock anthems. The existential dread of doomed love hovers over many of their songs, and even their dystopian sci-fi narratives are deeply personal and are told from the perspectives of flesh-and-blood people pouring out their emotions. Unlike a lot of stadium bands, Muse has always been about and I guess this is another thing that makes them contemporaries of Coldplay, for better or worse. Mm -hmm. They've always been about making the emotional nature of personal yearning, not just simplistic romance, make that emotional nature of personal yearning something that soars for the universal 
rather than take general, broad stroke, big ideas and, well, make them bigger. Right, Chris? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, uh, yeah, absolutely. And so th- the thing with them, like you said, that there's this sort of this personal, uh, what would you call it, sort of catharsis or uh, pain kind of thing that I think that relates to people on an individual level. And it's basically just kind of like, uh, you know, re- reaching the heart of the disaffected kid, but at great scale. And so, yeah. you know, they're not, I mean, there ain't where the streets have no name uh, here at all. Uh, this is not the kind of thing where, you know, like U2 was doing stadium shows here in the U.S. like five years ago where uh, friends of mine and their mothers yeah. went and saw them at like, you know, Giant Stadium or whatever, whatever the hell they call it now. Uh, somehow I don't think you're going to take your mom to see Muse, uh, you know, and so <laughs> yeah. there is that. You also have to remember, too, that they covered uh, a Nina Simone song yes. uh, uh, way, way back when. A great, great and, cover, by the way. Yeah, feeling good. Yeah. And well, what it proves is that you could transport, you know, you could forklift uh, a song like that into any sort of, uh, and you know, sort of musical skin yeah, if, right. if it's a great song and you have interpretive gifts. Um, a few other things to mention about this, you know, uh, we said in our last sort of bonus episode that they're a big, big band uh, in a in big, big, big uh, situ- situations, but they're not doing it for, again, they're not writing Beautiful Day, you know, they're not, they're not even writing Yellow, uh, yeah. you know, they're not, you know, they're not, you know, like they're not kiss, you know, yeah. any, anything like that. But it's, it is worth the mention that on origin of symmetry in 2001, one of the producers they worked with was David Bottrell. Mm. Now David Bottrell's credits, several Peter Gabriel records, tools, mm. anima. Mm. He also worked with King Crimson and rush. Now ain't none of that shit phony or yeah. made for the arenas. Right. You know? right. So number four, myth number four, their songs will be forgotten. Bullshit. Their biggest yep. rock radio hit, 2009's glam rock stomper Uprising, has roughly half a billion streams and counting on Spotify. Muse's biggest hit songs, Plug In Baby, Hyper Music, Stockholm Syndrome, you mentioned that, Time Is Running Out, Hysteria, Supermassive Black Hole, Knights of Sidonia, the aforementioned Uprising are all... If you go by not only Spotify streams, but YouTube video streams as well, they're all classics of 21st century rock. And most telling of all, and as someone who lives in South Korea, I can attest, you can go to any private singing room with a karaoke machine and find five to six Muse songs that you can sing and rock out to on there. So there you go. Oh, yeah. And that's like, like in America. I mean, I'm sure a lot of the karaoke bars have like, at least time is running out and yeah. uh, uprising right. uh, at this point. So yeah, no, they will not be uh, forgotten because look, I mean, they're, they're so like dramatic and over the top and so, so sort of original. I mean, the easiest retort to this is, have you actually heard this shit? Yeah. I yeah, mean, of, yeah. Course you're, of course you're not going to uh, forget it. Um, uh, here's a quote that I wanted to, uh, to kind of mention at this point. Uh, part of the um, of the episode. Uh, this is from an, an essay that ran in GQ a few years ago by a writer named Tom Phillip, uh, and where he kind of talks about this idea of this sort of love hate thing that we all that some people have in their heads for Muse. You know, everybody yeah. knows Muse, but okay, uh, we like them. Even the people, some of the people that like them, even know they're ridiculous. <laughs> but, but that's part of why we like them. That's why one of the reasons I love them. But he says, uh, "quote." Herein lies the secret of getting the fuck over it and loving Muse 
and then joking with a trademark symbol on it. Uh, they are as talented as they are embarrassing. <laughs> the music fucking rules, but don't look for anything deeper in the songs than basic emotional beats and a general political despair. It's dad rock, but also dads don't like it. Embracing the weird Twilight Zone muse operates in, bouncing between both holy shit and sometimes just plain shit is essential to the overall experience. Very, very good. Yes, exactly. And so, no, you ain't you ain't going to forget them. Uh, you know, Be- Bellamy is indelible for uh, better or worse. And again, like we, we say better. Yeah. All right. Myth number five. They have not matured as artists. And that's the laziest one of these five. I know. Yeah. This is a myth we will more forcefully debunk later when we do our album by album breakdown. But very briefly, yes. They have matured and, more importantly, evolved as artists. They followed up the global smash hit album, The Resistance, with 2012's The Second Law, an album full of introspective ballads and more pop-friendly textures. Their imperial phase, and as hitmakers, ended with 2015's Drones, the closest muse has ever come to outright metal. Inspired by the soundtrack music to the TV show Stranger Things, admittedly one of Matt Bellamy's favorite shows, 2018 Simulation Theory delves into new wave pop rock that gives their brand of prog alternative rock an overall warm gloss. Um, Essentially, each Muse album is different and distinct from each other, with each one displaying a progression of a facility of different styles and genres. Um, If that isn't maturity, I don't know what is. Yeah, and and I think the the notion of this one that 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 they're immature, the the one constant through all these records is Matt Bellamy's voice. Yeah, and so which has actually gotten more restrained. Yeah, uh, you know, back I mean those first two or three, especially the first two records, he was just he was letting his freak flag fly. You know, he yeah. was trying to he was trying to sing to the heavens, and again, you know that that space trucking kind of falsetto. Yeah, uh, which would get ridiculous, but but you know, then you get those song like Madness from yeah. Second Law, which is just beautiful, uh, right. and just like a, a straightforward thing. And then you got to remember they went from like very very British to the the longer they've gone, they've gotten more Germanic and more metallic. Yeah, uh, as they've gone along, I mean, very, very crowdish and, and very almost. Uh, there is much in, influenced by NXS uh, than than by like anything sort of like Britpop. You know, I mean, there's a lot of that kind of spare. I see some in NXS. There's some of that really? kind of spare, wow. yeah, you know, kind of spare and sexy kind of kind of stuff. I mean, it's uh, it it's interesting. But and then of course with the simulation theory, you listen to it and you're like, who the fuck produced this, Giorgio Moroder? <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. And so it's, you know, so it's interesting. And, and you look at it when you listen to showbiz, they released that in 1999. And I want to say that, uh, Bellamy at the time was what, 21. Yes. He uh, was 21. Yeah. Yeah. And his bandmates were, were 2021. 20, and it sounds like the kind of stuff, you know, kind of that was more pretentious because it was sort of more sort of uh, emotions they hadn't really experienced. Right. And so it sounded like a bunch of 20 year old kids, you know, just sort of, you know, barking at the moon. Yeah. And now, now they're in their forties and they sound like it because they've got the cynicism and grizzliness. And I mean, come on, the last song on this last record is called what we are all fucking fucked. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so that, that, that's what I'm saying. So like in sunburn, young man, despair, confusion, loneliness, lamenting that there might still be hope, uh, hope by we are fucking fucked. Uh, yeah, we're, we're hopeless. Nope. Ain't no hope, you know? So, <laughs> yeah. so there you go. So I mean, so those are really, really the myths. And 
I guess it just comes down to uh, rock is not supposed to just piss off your parents, but rock is supposed to make you smile and rock is supposed to be inherently ridiculous. Sure. You know? Like, come sure. on, you, like, you can make the argument that even Steely Dan's age is ridiculous in the <laughs> sense of, you know, kind of kind of its smoothness and its lacquer. Yeah. I mean, you know, the fact that they did, what, 115 takes for a drum piece is ridiculous. Yeah. So, right. The more ridiculous rock is, the more I'll like it. And I think you're you're kind of the same way, right? Yeah, I mean, some bands can pull off ridiculous well. Some yes. bands, some bands can't. Muse are one of those bands that can pull it off. On this episode, Chris and I defended the musical career and legacy of the huge arena rock band Muse. For the next episode, the Curmudgeon Rock Report is going back to the past, way, way back. Loyal listeners will remember the fourth Golden Age of Rock series we did earlier this year. That implies that there are first, second, and third Golden Ages as well. Well, it's about time yours truly curmudgeons tackle the origins and the beginnings of this genre we love called rock and roll. We'll make a meticulous survey and forensic examination of how rock music, or more specifically rock and roll as it was known back then, came about in the immediate aftermath of World War II, from its genetic origins in the blues to its mutation into rhythm and blues to its cross-pollination with country music, we'll examine how rock and roll was born in the American South and how this irresistible germ spread throughout the African-American music community up to its eventual crossover to a white American audience in the mid-1950s. Chuck Berry, Little Richard, Bo Diddley, Elvis Presley, Jerry Lee Lewis, Buddy Holly. These are just some of the names that factor into the narrative that the Curmudgeon Rock Report will weave in the next episode, The First Golden Age of Rock. All right, so before we go into all of Muse's, as of now, nine albums and do the breakdown of their records, which ones are the best, which ones are the ones to leave out, which are the ones you should really focus on. Let's briefly do a little rundown of the band's history and their origins leading up to their debut album from 1999, Showbiz. Now, the three core members of Muse, singer-guitarist Matt Bellamy, drummer Dominic Howard, bassist Chris Wollstenholm, they were working-class, music-loving teenagers in the early 1990s in Tainmouth, Devon, a small seaside town way down in the southwest corner of England. Bellamy auditioned for Howard's band, Carnage Mayhem, great name, <laughs> then became their singer-songwriter as the band changed their name to Gothic Plague. Uh, <laughs> that's another good name. Uh, yeah, that sounds like something out of Spinal Tap, Christ. <laughs> Wollstenholm later joined in as bass. The band trimmed themselves down to a trio and changed their name again to Rocket Baby Dolls as they adopted a gothic glam image and style to their music. They surprisingly won a local battle of the band's contest in 1994 after smashing their instruments on stage. <laughs> Soon afterward, they started taking music a little more seriously, quit their day jobs, moved to London after they finished whatever the British call high school, and changed their name to Muse. Now, why the name Muse? Well, according to several journalists who have interviewed them throughout the years, uh, they liked that the name was short, that it looked good on posters, 
and reflected that Bellamy had somehow summoned up this band the way spiritualists and mediums can summon spirits. It appears young Matthew was a conspiracy theorist even at this young age. Uh, After a couple of years of gigging, mainly in and around London and Manchester, the boys met Dennis Smith, a native of their hometown and owner of Sawmills Records, sorry, Sawmills Studios, a recording studio famous for having been the birthplace of albums by the Stone Roses, Ride, Oasis, and The Verve. Smith also came from Muse's hometown, and he offered to record and release their debut self-titled EP on the studio's own indie label, Dangerous. Their self-titled EP, Muse, came out in May 1998, and their second EP, Muscle Museum, came out uh, on the same label in January 1999. That was the cracker for the band, as it got noticed by the NME, uh, famous radio broadcaster Steve Lamock, and it eventually reached number three on the UK indie charts. Sawmill's owner Dennis Smith must have had some serious connections because upon signing Muse to his own personal record label and production company, Taste Media, he was able to nail down distribution deals with major labels in the UK and throughout Europe and Australia, eventually getting North American distribution through Madonna's record label, Maverick. This all set up nicely for Muse's debut full-length album, Showbiz, released in September 1999. Now, what can we say about this debut album? Well, whether you're listening to Muse's debut album for the first time or listening to it for the or listening to it for the first time in a long time, you can't escape the feeling that you're listening to a confident band with a defined sound and identity already in place. Uh, that confidence would eventually skyrocket them to the stratosphere and lead them to expand the parameters of what's possible in rock, blending commercial success and artistic merit like no band of their generation save for maybe arctic monkeys and i even debate that uh however this is the only album in muse's discography where the haters and critics can modestly claim radiohead wannabe status yes radiohead's influence is quite strong in regard to the alt rock style and 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 the band's alt rock style and matt bellamy's voice but even stronger is Even stronger than that is Muse's willingness and even their ability to rock the fuck out in a way Radiohead rarely did and could. Um, Uno sounds like a Mogwai instrumental at its heaviest, (laughs) but with an actual song built into it. Imagine Uh, that. Yeah, Cave blisters with an intensity not many British bands of the time could even muster. And on opening track, Sunburn, you already hear the classical piano or arpeggio to grungy metal dynamic that would define much of a Muse's best work in the future. It's a strikingly good first shot from a band that would soon grow by leaps and bounds on the next album. Chris? Yeah, uh, this is it's a strong uh, debut. And yeah, you're right. I mean, I think if you only listen to sunburn and yeah they do have that uh piano uh intro and they introduce you to that sort of you know matt bellamy's trademark uh, sense of drama but there is that is kind of very uh, radioheadish at the time yeah. it's very benzish and it's not an accident that again john lecky uh produced uh this record but like you said there's some neat stuff on here i really like muscle museum 
Yeah. Uh, you know, that has, it's, it's, it's almost like kind of a wooziness to it, or it's mm. kind of unique, uh, guitar tones in it. This is very much a guitar record. Yeah. Uh, not, you know, and yes, there was more guitar, like he would get, it would get more riff ish and more compressed and more sort of, uh, almost dancey, uh, almost, yeah. you know, it would get more electronicized as it went along and sort of more, uh, focused. Like I said, there was an evolution of muse, but here it's, uh, Bellamy showing he's a very good guitarist and a very good hard rock guitarist, but he's not in that disciplined uh, phase yet. Yeah, and so, not yet. Yeah. Right. And so that's why you get stuff like Cave, which is very reminiscent of like Smashing Pumpkins. Right. Of like, you know, Gish and Siamese era, uh, Dream era, uh, Smashing Pumpkins. And then, you know, just some of the other uh, stuff like, you know, Unintended is is really good. Um, so, yeah, just a, just a, it's a strong record. I think at the time. Because, you know, everybody was obsessed still with, with Radiohead. And, yeah, you had, like, the Travises and, and, and an American version of a Granddaddy was having their right. rap as well. I think that, you know, Muse was probably seen as kind of, like, second rate, third rate, and just kind of, oh, that's nice. You know, yeah. uh, you know they, got lift, they got lifted, scooped up from the from the country because uh, all the A&R guys wanted another Radiohead. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the, the bones were there. I mean, like I said, this is the framework was there. And, uh, when you think about it, when you get to like album six or, you know, you get 10 years later, it's like, oh yeah, I, I see the seeds there. Right. Definitely. All right. The next album, 2001 origin of symmetry. As I mentioned earlier, this is the album where muse become motherfucking muse. Uh, classical music affected prog rock, glam rock, metal, and shades of electronica, a hybrid of all of which Muse would become synonymous for, all seep into a sonic style mix that catapulted the band to huge chart success in the UK and throughout Europe. With this album, this really was kind of a breakthrough for them. This is the album that also introduced a string of iconic and canonical songs in Muse's discography. Plug-In Baby audaciously transcribes the harpsichord riff from Johann Sebastian Bach's Toccata and Fugue to, yeah. guitar, to guitar and slaps it onto the bass line from Air's Sexy Boy <laughs> to, wow. dev- to devastating effect and one of the greatest rock and pop singles of the 21st century. It is almost impossible to rock out with the sheer balls-to-the-wall thrash to the max determination that Muse executes on hyper music. Uh, they show their impressive versatility as well by surprisingly and successfully taking on the classic pop standard feeling good made famous almost 40 years previously by Nina Simone. It's an outstanding album as well as a taster for how Muse will ratchet things up in the next level on the, to the next level on the next album. Yeah, the only disagreement we would have there is I think that Muse really became Muse in the next record, mm. 2004. I think that this is kind of their bridge where they're starting to tighten up and you're starting to get that, you know, uh, that sense of drama. Yeah. And uh, and they're starting to kind of experiment with some of the more, you know, kind of space cadet, literal space cadet kind of stuff with like space dimension right, uh, and citizen erased and, and, and those types of things. But it's still, I mean... I think at this point you could say that Matt, Matt Bellamy was still trying to figure out how to control that voice. Yeah. Because I, I, the only complaint I'll have about this, I think it's a strong record. It rocks out in a lot of senses, but you know, 
strangely enough, like all their records, is it just me? Like all of their records are like between 52 minutes and 56 minutes. Yeah. I mean, they're all like the same. They have like the same number of songs and they're the same length. (laughs) Uh, But at this point, uh, 56 minutes or 55 minutes of Matt Bellamy, by the time you get about 42 minutes in, it's like, you know, you kind of need a break. Yeah. Um, But it was on the next record that he started to kind of get a little bit more discipline and a little bit more sort of uh, range and a little bit more confidence. Now, the one thing I'll say about this record, my favorite song on it, not because it's the best, but because we were talking about that ridiculousness here. Yeah. The ultimate litmus test for whether you like Muse or not is micro cuts, <laughs> uh, where there's a falsetto in it that's you know somewhere between like a legitimate opera star and like Tiny Tim, uh, <laughs> that you cannot understand what, what Bellamy is, is saying. Uh, which good because you know, the lyrics are kind of ridiculous too, but it, it, it kind of starts off with this kind of like, you know, almost like piano kind of, ah, you know, yeah, kind of thing. Yeah. And, and then it just starts rocking balls randomly in the middle of it. because <laughs> It takes these like a couple of prog uh, uh, detours and it's just like, it's a three minute and 39 minute song that, that feels like it takes 14 minutes to go through. Yeah, because there's so many twists and bends and, and all of that stuff. And so if you listen to it, like, the people on our side will say, yeah, fuck yeah. And then the people on the other side, what is this horse shit? <laughs> so, so again, that, that is the perfect kind of Rorschach for whether, <laughs> whether you like uh, Muse, Muse or not. So, yeah, but yeah, strong, strong record, a harbinger of what was to come in these next, like the three records that, well, every record after it, but this, the step up they make from this record to the next one we're going to talk about is stunning. Yeah. Uh, and the next one. Yes. Absolution from 2003. Here is where Muse embrace their prog rock tendencies and they attempt to go epic in sound and song structure and they shoot straight for the sports arenas. Um, Everything about Absolution is big. The hooks, the melodies, the riffs, the song lengths, the song structures. It is rock in capital letters. But what keeps it from being dunderheaded macho chest thumping arena rock is the soulfulness and the intelligence that the band employ not just in their lyrics but in their musical sophistication it's big bloated arena rock done with a classicist's finesse and style uh more canonical iconic muse songs to fill the karaoke songbook here stockholm syndrome the album's first single fires out of the speakers or your earphones with a menace and an intensity that literally not a single band in mainstream rock at the time could even compete with. Um, it's not, it's truly not only one of the greatest rock singles of the naughties, but quite possibly of all time. Time is running out a massive worldwide hit and the track that broke them on rock radio in the States is God's gift to perfect melodic anthemic arena rock. This yeah, is the really kind is. of this is the yeah. kind of song Noel Gallagher and Tom York at that wished he still had the juice to write back in 03. Yeah. Um and if your fist couldn't pump anymore, the absolute sick, absolutely sick bass groove and punishing guitar riffs of hysteria will provide that extra muscle. Flawless in execution, galling in ambition. Only the Mars Volta's deloused in the comatorium was able to match Muse and the heavy prog rock sweepstakes in 2003. Chris? 
Yeah, I think that's a fair statement. This has actually my my favorite Muse song title on it, and probably one that would have described young Matt Bellamy's worldview, which is Apocalypse Please. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which is great. Now, uh, Time is Running Out and Hysteria are two of the best uh, singles of at least the first decade of the aughts, if not of the entire 20th century, or 21st century. Uh, it just really, uh, really, really strong, especially Time is Running Out. I don't yeah. think that... Uh, like you said, Radiohead and Oasis and those other British bands of you know, kind of uh, Coldplay, none of them had a groove like that. And that's yeah. that's it. Muse is just very underrated in the sense of they were they just had a very nasty sort of innate uh, natural sense of rhythm that these other folks didn't have. Like you know, Bellamy could rock out, but he could shake his hips too at the same and a lot of times at the same time, like hysteria, he's doing that yeah. at the same time. Yeah. But yeah, like I said, time is running out is, is just a wonderful, uh, like I said, arena rock ready-made, whether he meant it to or not, it's uh, ready-made for the arenas. Uh, hysteria. Now <laughs> folks out there, a lot of you are just like, Oh, I've never heard that, which, which I'd say, yeah, you have. It's been basically, it's been licensed, you know, yeah. the shit's been licensed out of it. And it's like, you know, it was a couple of years ago that I, you know, I knew Muse's stuff from 2009 on. I hadn't really studied it that much beforehand. I hear Hysteria, and this is like 2018 or something. Like, oh yeah, I've, that's been in commercials and you yeah. know, ESPN and you know NCAA games for years. And so, yeah. Uh, so that's another reason why Muse will not be forgotten because a couple of these things will always, 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 always be licensed in a popcorn commercial in 2779. Hysteria, <laughs> hysteria will be the soundtrack. <laughs> All right, next, Black Holes and Revelations from 2006. Great album. Yeah, their first album released directly on a major label, Warner Brothers. Uh, Black Holes and Revelations is not just, it was not just my gateway album to Muse. It is where Muse not only coalesces all the styles and influences they had accumulated on their previous records, but injects them with epic sci-fi grandeur. Uh, if Absolution shot epic glam prog metal to the moon, Black Holes and Revelation stretches it out horizontally to widescreen cinematic proportions. More canonical, iconic Muse songs to fill the karaoke songbook here. Starlight is an immaculate arena sing-along, while Supermassive Black Hole, another worldwide hit single that garnered even more radio presence for the band in America, um, is irresistible electro-pop. If Kid A era Radiohead wanted a hit, they would have done this song. Uh, uh, Knights of Sidonia sounds like an Ennio Morricone spaghetti western soundtrack, what it would have sounded like had it been done by Queen. Uh, and Map of the Problematique, one of my personal favorite Muse songs, sounds like The Cure jacked up the ass by White Zombie. Uh, yeah, the, mo the most perfectly and representatively Muse-esque album Muse ever made. If it sounds like a statement album, that's because it was and it is. At a time when Radiohead were starting to run out of steam, their supposed imitators were passing them by as one of the biggest and best bands in the world. This is Muse's official candidate entry for the 500 greatest albums of all time. Chris? Yeah, I mean, basically, uh, I think at this point, uh, Muse had achieved, you know, they're on the major label, you know, they had gotten the top 10 hit uh, from Absolution in Time Is Running Out. Uh, they had some money in the bank, you know, they got themselves on a major label. And so this is, uh, 
muse being confident enough to start not futzing around, but to just like start, you know, like really wearing influences on their sleeves and sort of right. take taking things to uh, regions that uh, even at that point, I think folks were like, okay, yeah, they have a sense of drama, but wow, space, space opera. Okay. We, yeah. we, we weren't expecting that. Yeah. And so now you get like all these sounds. I mean, I, I love super massive black hole, yeah. uh, you know, with that, that riff. I mean, it's yeah. just like this, like this, almost like a, almost like it sounds like something off a tone Lokes old record, you know, it's like one of those, <laughs> you know, like those big fat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like one of those big fat Rick Rubin riffs. And you know, like I was saying, so there is some NXS with that, that kind of like dancey electronicized, uh, not much bass stuff to it. Uh, Starlight. I mean, basically sounds like it could be like the, uh, the theme song to the world cup from 1986. Yeah. Uh, you know, and so, yeah, I think there's a reason why Muse is, you know, shows up in a lot of sports uh, stuff. Oh, yeah. It's like, you know, t- take the idea of We Are the Champions, and I think Muse has gotten about 17 different uh, songs out, <laughs> out, out, out of that out of that yeah. same thing. And you start to see here, and I think the biggest breakthrough or the, the biggest smile inducer on this is Knights of Cydonia. Yeah. Which is one of, I think they're on YouTube anyway, I think it's like one of their three or more, one of their most popular songs, if not the most their most the most popular song up there is audacious track (laughs) yeah and basically it's like it's the beginning of it is like cygnus x1 and then the end of it or the middle to end of it is like bohemian rhapsody part two yeah Uh, it's 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 russian queen i keep coming we keep coming back to that (laughs) yeah absolutely and 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 at this point it's like okay yeah i mean they're not even trying to pretend that they're not like uh you know they're not hooking themselves back onto like rush and the king crimsons and the you know even the like uh, peter gabriel area genesis kind of stuff you know it's like you know uh it, it's not spacey. It actually exists in outer space, you know? Yeah. And so it's, so they're, they're sci-fi leanings. I mean, I think they're, they're truly bizarre sci-fi leanings really kind of start here. Yeah. Totally. On this record. Yeah. Now the next two albums, the resistance from 2009 and the second law from 2012, I lump these albums together for a couple of reasons. First, they both mark Muse's transition to their Imperial phase where playing stadiums, at least in the UK and Europe, became a regular thing for them. Uh, The Resistance yielded Uprising, a massive worldwide hit, including the pop charts in the US. I think it went top 40 and uh, helped Muse graduate to full-time arena rock status. The Second Law yielded another massive worldwide hit single with the electro-pop ballad Madness. You referred to that song earlier. Great song. Um, However, the second reason I lumped them together is that I'm not really a fan of either of these albums. The albums that had mainstream rock and pop fans flock to Muse are the albums that turn me off the most, ironically enough. Whatever that says about me, I'll leave that up to you. To me, The Resistance is not just recycled, because it is recycled. They've done this stuff better in previous albums, but it's also a watered-down, bland version of Muse to me. Um, The production sounds muffled and not as crisp as their previous records, which is not surprising considering that it's their first album where Muse produced themselves. Yeah. Um, the second law to me is a l- way too mellow, way too poppy, and goes a little overboard with the electronic pop angle. Although Madness is a great song, Chris. Yeah, I mean, I, I could see why you're kind of lumping these records together. Uh, I like both of them. I think the second law, uh, the end of the second law, it's it's strange. It's like basically, it's like 
Bellamy's R and B record. Yeah. Up, in, up until you get the end of it, and then you get that remarkable, you know, the second law entropy. Yeah. You know that, that eventually the world is, go- you know, the the canister is going to blow up, and so you get this very kind of spacey techno kind of housey, yeah, you know, almost Brian Eno ish kind of thing at the end. Uh, but the resistance, like you said, it, it's not the best production job. Obviously, it's nowhere near as well produced as the two before it. Uh, but I love it because it's just so indulgent. Yeah. And at this point, it's like, okay, I'm going to ape the shit out of uh, uh, Freddie Mercury. Uh, <laughs> like the Exogenesis uh, Symphony, uh, the three parts thing at the end. I mean, you know, at this point, they're just kind of like doing the the uh, the Prague grandeur thing. Yeah. Uh, United States of Eurasia is uh, basically a, uh, a ripoff of Queen. Yeah. I mean, they basically take like Seven Seas of Rye or the Prophet Song or any of that kind of stuff. And there you go. That's United States of Eurasia. But Uprising, one of the best singles uh, ever. I mean, that that is an amazing single. And it, you know, that was, that's what made them superstars worldwide. Yeah. And that's, you know, kind of broke them out of Europe. Uh, deservedly so. And like I said, Madness is just... Uh, the first couple of times you hear it, it's like, uh, eh, that's just him trying to just like ape R and B. And then you're like, wow, that actually, again, Bellamy was capable of grooves that Tom York and Noel Gallagher could only dream of. Right. And I think it comes there. And so this is where I think you're right. These songs, these two albums, they get indulgent. They have a couple of great singles, but they're not as focused, uh, on these records. Now, they would get back there uh, with the next record for sure. But I think this is just kind of like they had become a big, big band and maybe they were coasting a little bit. And Bellamy was just trying to say, okay, what can I get away with here? Right. And what can I get away with uh, there? And, uh, oh, okay. I got away with it. Okay. Well now, now I guess maybe we'll, we'll get back to it and just uh, now have more of a seriousness of purpose. All right. All right. The next album drones from 2015. Now this is more like it. Their third straight album to peak at number one worldwide, including their first and only number one placing on the U.S. Billboard album chart. This is the album that shows Muse at their most unabashedly metal with capital letters while still maintaining their glam prog and electronic sounds, albeit in subtle, small doses. I've always maintained that Muse are at their very best when they're just rocking the fuck out. Oh, yeah. And this album proves that theory. Uh, Psycho, the biggest hit off the record, is pure earth-shattering glam metal, but without the hairspray and lipstick and plenty of attitude and anti-militarism in-your-face socio-political commentary. Uh, Legendary ACDC and Def Leppard producer Mutt Lang, he produced this album and his fingerprints are all over Reapers with its brontosaurus stomp and Matt Bellamy's guitar hero pyrotechnics. If there ever was a doubt that Muse were the natural successors to Queen's uh, heavy Queen and their heavy pomp rock, the track Revolt <laughs> puts that doubt to rest with this majestic anthemic sing-along pop rock. Uh, and it's very operatic Queen-like backing vocals to boot. Um, it's interesting to note that Bellamy had just broken up his engagement with the famous actress Kate Hudson. Yeah. Uh, during this time. And the album's theme of the havoc and destruction brought on by war curiously overlaps with the havoc and destruction brought on by the breakup of a romantic relationship. Um, I'm not a psychologist, but it's interesting that this is the time in his life, that this is the time in his life when Bellamy chose to explore this theme. 
Somewhere, Elvis Costello, the guy who gave us the thematic Love is War concept album, Armed Forces, was smiling. Chris? <laughs> yeah, I, I think you're right. There's the Love is War, but I think this is their best record because one, like you said, the rock, the rock and stuff really rocks, you know, Dead Inside, Psycho, yeah. uh, Reapers, um, uh, The Handler, uh, yeah. was fantastic. Uh, so it not only rocks balls, I mean- Mutt Lang came in and he didn't make him sound like Def Leppard. He made him sound like the musiest that muse has ever sounded. And so, right. you know, Mutt had a, you know, he's, he's incredibly underrated. He just had a, uh, a talent for bringing out the best in the artists that he worked with. Yeah. M- yeah. Making muse sound like Shania Twain would not have worked. <laughs> no, pro- 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 probably not. But no, well, yeah, exactly. That, no, I'm saying, you know, like Lang is just like a studio whiz and he's like a song, he's like a song doctors or studio doctor, studio doctor. Um, and so it, it really is kind of amazing. But this album is so cohesive. It's, it's yeah. a, it really is a concept record. And it's about dehumanization and rehumanization. Mm. You know, I mean, Psycho makes that kind of obvious because, you know, you get those interpolations of uh, Full Metal Jacket. It's, yeah. It doesn't actually sample it, but it it it, it hints at it. Yeah, yeah. He, he, he's weaning off the conspiracy theory shit and actually talking about real stuff this time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, yeah, so it kind of exists here. And it's just this idea of are we losing touch with our humanity? Can we get it back? And then, of course, you know, the end of it, you know, with the globalists and, and drones, uh, we, lo- we lose the war. Uh, for what it's worth, uh, the globalist is not about George Soros uh, funding <laughs> Antifa. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's actually about the, you know, uh, lamenting the destruct- the actual destruction of the world. Uh, there is this kind of millennial or so what, what would you call it? This kind of like pre-apocalyptic tension yeah. that I think that Bellamy just rolled out of bed with for most of his life. Right. And, right. Uh, and so that it wasn't militarism. It, the guy really was that kind of nuts in his head about, you know, uh, the sky, the sky is falling. And well, so he, it's anti-militarism. This whole album yeah. is anti, a, oh, an, the anti-military industrial complex. He's right. open, he's open yeah. about it. <laughs> oh, exactly. And so anybody that thought that they were like right wing jingoists not after this record, no, not at all. And so he's telling a story on this record and it works and it works beautifully. And so again, I, I think it's their best record. Right. All right. Next, next album, simulation theory from 2018, Quite possibly the most underrated album in Muse's discography. Here is where Matt Bellamy's obsession with the the streaming show Stranger Things, a much health a much healthier obsession than the conspiracy theory crap of his younger years. This is where the uh, his obsession with that TV show rears his head, especially in the album cover. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, yeah, glossy early 1980s new wave pop gets the Muse stadium rock treatment. It shouldn't work. But it does, and it does so gloriously. Uh, Thought Contagion is ready-made arena rock of the highest order with a creepy synth line leading to one of the band's greatest, most bombastic, cathartic sing-alongs. And that's saying something when talking about Muse. Also, you gotta love Thought Contagion's uh, disturbing lyrics about people's negative thoughts invading our minds like a virus. (laughs) Uh, For a band known for their rocket ship-sized rock, They've proven over the years to have a facility for modern electronic pop, and uh, Something Human is another addition to the band's arsenal. If you if you ever wanted to hear what 1980s Queen would have sounded like if the Cars circa 1978 
wrote songs for them, check out The Dark Side. <laughs> um, if you've ever wondered what Muse would sound like if Nine Inch Nails' Trent Reznor got his hands on them, check out the industrial rock groove and sick textures of propaganda. I love this album. Chris? Yeah, I I don't. Only in the <laughs> sense of, uh, I think it's a really good record, but I can it's a, see- it's, it's, very, it's very eclectic. Yeah, it's it's eclectic, but I can also see why this is in my research as far as looking for the lines that we talked about earlier. This is probably their most their their certainly their most mocked, uh, mm. not their not their most despised. That might either that's either that's between second law drones uh, between the critics, but uh, this is their most mocked because in some ways they kind of see Matt Bellamy going into self parody. Yeah, and I can kind of see that because it's uh, it covers the same kind of thematic ground but like you said at least he's having a whole lot more fun musically yeah. this time because yeah. again you know the Giorgio Moroder stuff the uh you know the the house music stuff the, you know the um again the the sort of the synth pop uh, uh and like I said earlier Timbaland uh produced propaganda yeah uh, which if you think about it yeah obviously he did uh Mike Elizondo otherwise known as uh, Dr. Dre's musical director and yeah. uh, the guy that played bass on all those Latter-day Dre uh, songs. Uh, he uh, produced Blockades. And yeah. so, yeah, so they you know, they wanted to make a credible electro pop record and a, a kind of, you know, a credible kind of uh, housey kind of record. And they went straight to the sources. And so, yeah, it, in some ways, I think it... I got to say it, it's between this and Showbiz. To me, I think they're their two worst records. Um, I don't know. There's just something about this record that just doesn't really do it for me. Um, yes. I mean, they're, they're, they're inventing and they're very creative with the music and the production, but it's kind of like, dude, didn't you just do this in the last two records? You know, can you move on and. You well, know? See, I, I disagree. I, I I think they're they're going. I mean, like the s- songs like Propaganda, something yeah. human. They they didn't do anything like those songs in the previous records. They, I mean, this is them yeah. branching out into new, a little bit of R and B, but really, it's really fun electro sheen new wave pop. Something yeah. Muse had never done before. This is why I like it. It's, it's unlike anything in their in their discography. And I, I think the songwriting is good. Thought Contagion is awesome. I think it's a yeah. great kick ass song. Yeah, you know? I think that you know that the dark side and propaganda are the best songs on the record. No, I'm I'm not disagreeing with you uh, yeah. on that, but this idea of like you know dehumanization, rehumanization. Oh, the, uh, lyric, the lyrical themes, right? Okay, yeah. Yeah, I mean that's that that's what I mean. I mean, yeah, musically it it it's very creative, uh, and you know they're uh, they're you know kind of like that's one thing you got to say about Bellamy is that he never kind of stayed in the same place. That he always was kind of yeah. like. It was right. almost like the the Frankenstein, you know. It's yeah. like, now let's now let's try this. You know, mad genius in the studio <laughs> kind of thing, and yeah. that that's what makes you know. Yeah, this band is ridiculous, but they're consistently inconsistent. You know, like they're they they go to new waves and new levels of ridiculousness as they go along. Right. Uh, I I just think that again lyrically, I, it just sort of covering the same ground. It, it starts to get a little, eh. you know, yeah. it's like you know, like come on, man, let's talk about something else here. Yeah. So well, which leads us to the last and final album in the in their nine album discography. Their most recent one from this year. No, we're not putting this in the parallel universe because Muse are actually a big name band. <laughs> yep. Um the album is Will of the People. So uh, shortly before the release of this album, Matt Bellamy said in an interview that Muse's label, Warner Brothers, asked for a greatest hits album. 
Instead, the band opted to give them an album of new songs that stylistically cover every phase of the band's career. Now, while that may sound interesting in theory, R.E.M.'s 1996 album, New Adventures in Hi-Fi, is an excellent example of this kind of record. There's also the risk of a band recycling and repeating itself. Unfortunately for Muse, there's quite a bit of that on Will of the People, musically speaking. Um, That being said, it's still a very solid outing. Uh, The title track, like you mentioned, Chris, is that rarity that Muse specializes in. The glam rock protest song with a vocal hook that that slyly cribs from Marilyn Manson's The Beautiful People. Uh, The melodramatic piano rock of Liberation is quite possibly the best Queen song that Queen never wrote. Right. Um, in an interview with Apple Music, Bellamy called the song Kill or Be Killed the best prog metal track we've ever done, quote unquote. While that's a bit of a hyperbole, it does kick serious ass. Uh, <laughs> nevertheless, yeah. throughout the album, one gets a sense that Muse has kind of been there, done that already. Um, in, in the interview with The Guardian that I quoted from earlier, Bellamy mentioned that he's always wanted Muse to do a quieter, acoustic-based album. Well, Matt, maybe time for the boys to explore that direction. <laughs> Chris? Yeah. I, I, you know, the thing about this record, like you said, that they originally were asked for a greatest hits record. And I got the sense in a couple of things, interviews I read with Bellamy, they might have actually done that if it wasn't for COVID. Mm, and, yeah. and so I kind of think it's like, okay, well, we're doing this. So now let's try to do some new stuff that evokes, you know, kind of like it celebrates us. And let's right. see if we can find some new wrinkles, which they kind of did, you know, kill or be killed. Obviously, they've never done a song like "We Are Fucking Fucked." Uh, <laughs> you know, that's that direct and that gloomy. Uh, yeah. There, uh, they also, I guess, you know, he's what he's in his like early mid forties. Maybe he's yeah. calming down, or maybe he's learning how to yeah. like life, uh, yeah. or at least like Los Angeles, because now he's got a song called "You Make Me Feel Like It's Halloween." <laughs> you know, it's you know, it, it it sounds like Muse, but it's more sort of like lovey dovey uh, Muse. Yeah. yeah, and but. And I was, we were talking about this earlier that, okay, so in the last three years, you've had the COVID-19 pandemic shutdown. You've had the attempted insurrection uh, at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, uh, 2021. And now you've got all this nuclear tension stuff going on between Russia and Ukraine. Well, uh, I guess you can kind of say that Muse, it's okay if they want to ape themselves, because uh, between the time that they released Simulation Theory and now, the world became a Muse album. Mm, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah, and so yeah, and so now it's like you look at his stuff from 2006 and you know 2009. He's like, oh, that's just that's stupid, and that's you know sci-fi or that's 14-year-old comic book boy stuff. No, actually, that's now the world we live in, and so. Now, you know, so now Bellamy's going to be like, whoa, you know, all of a sudden he turns into Bob Dylan, you know? <laughs> so, yeah. But anyway, it's a good record. It's a good album. But, but I, I musically, I think they need to get, go into something different. Yeah. You know, for the and, next one. Right. And I, I think, yeah. And th- that kind of sets it up. I think that uh, they have consistently kind of, you know, you know, Bellamy is one of these guys that will always keep growing, always try to challenge himself. I think this one, he kind of gave himself a little bit of an out as far as being lazy or not putting it in because of the combination of, 
you know, what the label wanted and, and COVID. But now I think that he, he's gotten that out of his system. You just know within the next two years or like the next Muse album will be like nothing like the others. I mean, so right. we have the confidence, you know, eight or nine records in that the, no two Muse records sound the same. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, I'm excited to see uh, what they do next. And, you know, just as, you know, like a, just a, a parting uh, thought here, uh, again, Muse, that yes. Uh, are they a little bit ridiculous? Yes. Are they a little bit over the top? Uh, yes. Um, do they have a lot to say? Yes. Um, do they force you to listen to them in spite of all the bombast and all of the sort of, uh, you know, kind of ridiculous falsetto gymnati- gymnastics? Yes. And so this is a test. Uh, do you have the patience to invest in a band that is doing modern day prog rock? If you do, you will be rewarded over and over and over and over again. Very well said. Okay, so we've come to our conclusion of our defense of Muse. We hope all you people out there who have not listened or delved into their albums and just know some of their hit songs, give it a shot. I, I think, uh, I said, if you like Queen and Rush and Radiohead, you should like Muse. <laughs> um, but anyway, we're done with that. Chris, for our next episode, we're going way back, aren't we? Way, way back. How, how way back are we going? To the very beginning of this wonderful thing we love called rock and roll. That's right. The first golden age of rock. We're still deciding whether to make it one or two episodes. We will, we will make that very clear very soon. But yes, we're going back to the beginnings of of rock and roll and what this how it happened what happened who was involved all that kind of stuff uh really looking forward to that we're not just going to talk about the artists involved we're talking we're also going to talk about the socio-cultural even slightly political context that contributed to the rise of this genre yeah absolutely and it's uh, a whole bunch of folks that are from the same region that are uh, scooping up the same uh, musical influences, but taking them in wildly different uh, directions that will all be known as rock and roll. And so that story of, uh, of what would you say, like 52 all the way through like 1959 or 60, yeah. really just kind of a fascinating yeah. uh, study. And so, yeah, looking forward to that. So folks, uh, as we always uh, uh, suggest and encourage you to do, uh, reach out to us at uh, curmudgeonrock.gmail.com if you have any comments, thoughts, uh, if you think that we were full of crap on Muse. And if you do think that uh, Muse indeed sucks hairy balls, uh, definitely reach out to us on that. Uh, join our curmudgeonly community on Facebook. Uh, it, the business is picking up there. We're, we're, we're challenging and stimulating folks up there. You can join us there. It's invite only, but you know, chances are we'll let you in so long as you know you're not on the sex offender list. Uh, <laughs> Facebook.com/slash curmudgeon rock. Uh, we're active on Twitter. Uh, you know, I, I'm kind of our Twitter meister. Uh, I've uh, gotten into really going after John Rich, who uh, wonderful songwriter, but he's he's a fucking Trump fascist who, who posts some scary shit up there, and so we troll him. Uh, you want to follow and see what exactly we're doing, uh, follow us on Twitter. At, we're at Curmudgeon Pod. Uh, and uh, as we're apt to do these days, we'll be creating a Spotify playlist that uh, includes most, if not all, of the music uh, that we covered here to, uh, on this episode. So 
Uh, we love you all. Uh, we hope that you have a, a good couple of weeks and that we have done our public service and told you that, yes, Muse is good.